There are so many religions in the world. How are they similar and how are they different? We need to know. The culturally correct view is to blend them all together as equally relevant and legitimate. But is that true? Prior to becoming a follower of Jesus, your host, Mike Shreve, was an avid seeker of truth, exploring many paths to spirituality. One of his passions now is to help bridge the gap so that others can discover the true light, which gives light to everyone entering the world. Now, here's Mike Shreve revealing the true light. I have two questions for you. Number one, who were the Nephilim giants of Genesis chapter 6? And number two, were they the offspring of fallen angels and earthly women? Those are two very intense questions that are controversial, and we need to bring forth some biblical answers. First, let me read the foundational passage, Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. The first four verses are the most important to this episode. Genesis 6, 1 through 8. Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever. The King James Version says, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for he is indeed flesh. Yet his days shall be 120 years. And there's differences of opinion on whether or not that means the human lifespan normally was reduced to 120 years or there was only that much time left until the flood came. Now here's the key verse. There were giants on the earth in those days. And the Hebrew word translated giants there is Nephilim. There were Nephilim, there were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward, remember that, it says also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old. One version says ancient heroes, men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. Ponder that for just a moment. The heart of the Almighty God churning with grief over the wickedness of the human race. So the Lord said, I will destroy man who I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But, thank God that conjunction is there. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. God always, let me repeat, always has a remnant. God always has a chosen person that is in covenant with the God of heaven, that endures times of cataclysmic chaos. This is probably one of the most mysterious passages of Scripture in the Bible. Let me reemphasize the original Hebrew word that is translated giants in verse 4 is Nephilim. Actually, the word 
Giants is a questionable rendering of the word. There are differences of opinion. Incidentally, Nephilim is the plural word and Nephil is the singular. Strong's Concordance offers that the word means a feller or someone who cuts down trees. And the symbolic implication of that is a bully or a tyrant. While other commentators feel that the word Nephilim actually means fallen ones, but the Nephilim were not the fallen ones. They were supposedly the offspring of the fallen ones, fallen angels, in union with earthly women. No etymologist can fully prove his or her case. The subtleties of the meanings of the original words have been lost, and no one's opinion is without question. There are extra-biblical books, or books that are not a part of the canon of Scripture, the accepted 66 books of the Bible we embrace, that are more blatant in promoting this particular view, like the Book of Enoch or the Book of Jubilees. But of course, they cannot be trusted as reliable sources. In fact, I tell people not to read those books because of certain things they contain and it's confusing for some people. But for the sake of this study, I'm going to quote First Enoch chapter 7, verses 2 and 3. And that says, When the angels, the sons of heaven, beheld them, they became enamored of them, speaking of the daughters of men, saying to each other, Come and let us select for ourselves wives from the progeny of men, and let us beget children. In addition to Enoch, the book of Jubilees, and this is very important, Chapter 7, verses 21 through 25, states that ridding the earth of these Nephilim was one of God's primary purposes for flooding the earth in Noah's time. These works describe the Nephilim as being evil giants, the Book of Enoch and the Book of Jubilees. But that brings up a big question. If God's primary purpose was to wipe out that race of wicked giants, then why are they mentioned again long after the flood? When the ten spies came back from the land of Canaan and brought their quote-unquote evil report how Israel would not be able to conquer the Canaanite tribes, their excuse was, in Numbers 13.33, There we saw the giants, and the Hebrew word is Nephilim. There we saw the giants, the descendants of Anak, came from the Nephilim, and we were like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so were we in their sight. There's a sermon in that. The way you see yourself is the way the enemy sees you, and they saw themselves weak, incapable, and easily defeated in the face of these Nephilim. Well, once again, I want to emphasize, if God's purpose in bringing the flood was to wipe out the Nephilim, why did they reappear in Numbers chapter 13? Interestingly, Orthodox Judaism does not accept this particular view of angels copulating with the daughters of men. In fact, one well-known rabbi, even pronounced a curse on those that believed or promoted that doctrine. And so Orthodox Judaism takes a stand against that concept. There's some New Testament passages we need to cover concerning 
the whole idea of God judging the angels that went over that barrier between the heavenly sphere and the earthly realm and involved themselves with women, and they were cursed as a result. And there are two passages of Scripture that seem to imply the possibility of this idea, but there's no clear statement. So you have to read a lot into it. But I think we need to go ahead and quote the two passages. Second Peter chapter 2, verses 5 through 9 says, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, now that could be referring to Satan's uprising in the beginning, or it could be referring to Genesis chapter 6, which is, of course, promoted by those who believe that particular doctrine. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. Now stop right there before I read the rest. You need to understand that the word translated hell there is Tartarus. And Tartarus is a different word than the normal word for hell in the New Testament, which is Hades. And because of that, many believe that Tartarus is a specific chamber of hell that might be called also the bottomless pit. And I'll get to that more later. But if God spared not the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell, to Tartarus, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. So that implies that they are imprisoned there permanently until the day of judgment. And did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly and delivered righteous Lot who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows, then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. So that seems to be a reference that could be bent to connect with Genesis chapter 6. Also, talking about Tartarus, I might mention that the book of Revelation highlights this chamber or realm of hell, referred to as the bottomless pit. When the fifth angel sounds, which is the first woe of three woes in chapter 9, verses 1 through 11, you can read about it. A smoke comes out of this pit and creatures that look like locusts flood the earth, which could be demonic-like beings that are reserved for the torment of the human race in the last days. And the king of the bottomless pit is referred to as Abaddon. In the Hebrew or in the Greek, Apollyon. And both of those words mean the destroyer. Well, we know that Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I personally believe Abaddon, or some pronounce it Abaddon, but it's more correctly pronounced Abaddon, or Apollyon are just two different names for Satan, because he is the destroyer. And in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 3, we find out that that is the abode that he will be placed in for a thousand years. 
Listen, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Now, could that mean literally a thousand years or an extended period of time represented symbolically by a thousand years? There's differences of opinion on that. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. And after these things, he must be released for a little while. So there you have a little bit deeper explanation of Tartarus, where God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them into that place. All right, let's go to Jude chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Also talking about this, Jude says, I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Now here's the key verse. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Now, some theologians, some Bible teachers connect the passage about Sodom and Gomorrah, the verse 7 about Sodom and Gomorrah with verse 6 about the angels who left their proper domain saying that it's all a reference to sexual immorality, but you can't really say that for sure when you read it carefully. What was their proper domain? And what was the abode that they left? Surely it must have been the third heaven, and they were cast down with Satan when he fell because they followed after his diabolical leadership? Could that be it? Or does it mean that they left the angelic world to involve themselves lustfully with women on the earth? It doesn't say that but you can read it in between the lines if you want to. The angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved an everlasting change under darkness. Under darkness, what does that mean? If you are under darkness, then it is impossible for you to see truth. It is impossible for you to experience God. You're locked into a lost state of deception and delusion. That's what it is to be under darkness. So they're irretrievable in the state that they have been confined to as they await final judgment. Why were they compared to Sodom and Gomorrah? Or was that even a comparison? That's up to question. You read it, Jude chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, and see what you think. Now let's go back to the original scripture and ask some very important questions. Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, the first two verses of that controversial passage. Now, it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves 
of all whom they chose. Who were these sons of God? What's that a reference to? And what words in Hebrew are translated that way? And that's a very important part of my explanation. Because the Hebrew words are ben Elohim. B-E-N, which means sons, and Elohim, which means God. Or it has been translated gods in the plural. But over 2,000 times in the Bible, Elohim is translated God. I've heard it said that this phrase in the Old Testament only refers to angels. I've heard major Bible teachers say that, but you can't prove that. I'm going to take you to the passages they usually reference. And that's three verses out of the book of Job, starting with Job chapter 1, verse 6. Now, there was a day when the sons of God, ben Elohim, the sons of God, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And Job chapter 2, verse 1 is almost the exact same wording. That the day came when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. But it doesn't say whether they were righteous sons of God or evil sons of God. And to say that the fact angels in this passage are referred to as sons of God is a reason to believe the sons of God in Genesis chapter 6 were angels is impossible to say with absolute assurance. You can't connect the dots between the two without questioning whether or not you're right. Because see, the sons of God there could be some of the offspring of Adam and the offspring of Seth, who continued a line that was more inclined toward righteousness, more inclined toward covenantal relationship with God, because the line of Cain tended to be a wicked and cursed line. Now, you cannot pass on wickedness genetically, and you can't pass on righteousness genetically. And so that can't absolutely be proven. But I tend to believe personally that the line of Seth is being referenced as sons of God, and that some of them had already died and gone on to the celestial world, and they would come on a certain day and present themselves to the Lord. That's one possible meaning for it. And then again, it could be angels. Angels being a creation of God, the host of heaven were made with the breath of his mouth. They could be referenced as sons of God. In Job chapter 38, verses 4 through 7, it definitely sounds like angels, though. I can't offer any other explanation because God asked Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know, or who stretched the line upon it? To what were its foundations fashioned? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together? And all the sons of God shouted for joy. Well, that can't be the offspring of Seth that had passed on to the celestial world because that's talking about when God was actually making the universe. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? And the sons of God shouted for joy. So that must be angels. But 
here's the key response to some Bible teachers I've heard that say that's the only place in Scripture where sons of God are mentioned and it refers to angels. Well, it's not the only place that Ben Elohim is found in the Old Testament. It's the only place where in your King James Version and New King James Version, Ben Elohim is rendered sons of God, but is rendered differently in another passage of Scripture. Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 1, is referring to all Israelites. And it says, you are the children of the Lord your God. But in the Hebrew, ben Elohim, a reference to Israelites. You are the children of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves, nor shave the front of your head for the dead. It was also used in reference to the unjust judges of Israel in Psalm 82, verses 6 and 7. God said to these unjust judges who were taking bribes, who were not judging properly, who were unjust in their treatment of the children of Israel, God said this, I said you are gods. The original Hebrew is Elohim. You are Elohim, and all of you are children of the Most High. And the original Hebrew is Ben Elion, children of the Most High. But you shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. So God is rebuking them, saying, yes, you're children of God. You're Ben Elohim. You're Ben Elion, children of the Most High. But you're going to die like ordinary human beings. And so that phrase is not just used concerning angels. That's a wrong assessment. Now, in the New Testament, in Luke chapter 3, verse 38, Adam is referred to as the Son of God because he was a direct creation of God. And so it's not a thing unthinkable that some of the Adamic race would be referred to as sons of God or Ben Elohim if Adam was himself because we're the product of Adam, right? Now, is there any natural biological reason not to believe in angelic copulation with the daughters of men? Is there any just natural reason? Is there any biological reason to believe this could not have taken place? I believe there's some strong reasons. There is a barrier between earthly species. This was set up by God in Genesis. Over and over you find God saying that animals will reproduce after their kind. Certain species will reproduce after their kind. God emphasizes that. And nature works against cross-species breeding. In fact, that's one of the reasons why I don't believe in evolution, because nature works against evolution. Because when cross-breeding does take place, the offspring of that union is incapable of reproducing. For instance, when a horse and a donkey come together, the project is a mule and it can't reproduce. When a lion and a tiger come together, the product is a liger and it cannot reproduce. And so God shuts it down. Species reproduce after their kind. And if this exists between earthly, animal, species, and other animals, and human beings, human beings cannot cross that line with animals, then how in the world isn't it preposterous to think 
that that barrier would not exist between angels and humans? Besides, what about the words of Jesus? In Matthew 22, verse 30, Jesus was talking with some Sadducees that do not believe in the resurrection. And he said, in the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage, but are like the angels of God in heaven. And that's also repeated in Mark chapter 12, verse 25, and Luke chapter 20, verse 35. He says that human beings in the resurrection will neither marry nor be given in marriage. Well, why do you marry? You marry, of course, for relationship, but also for sexual union and reproduction. And so don't you think that was Jesus' way of saying that sexual union does not happen among angels? And reproduction, of course, does not happen among angels because they are eternal beings, eternal entities. Think on what I just said a little bit about Matthew 22, verse 30, and the other parallel scriptures. But without going any deeper into that, let me ask you, who was God upset with in Genesis chapter 6? After he described the sons of God going into the daughters of men, then he said, my spirit shall not always strive with man. My spirit shall not strive with man forever. If God was upset with these angels that rebelled, he would have said, my spirit shall not strive with fallen angels. And it wasn't the men that were at fault. It was the women that were yielding to the enticements of these angels, supposedly. So God should have said, my spirit will not always strive with women, or my spirit will not always strive with angels. But instead, he said, my spirit shall not always strive with man, which is a word that means the entire human race, of course. For he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. That's something to consider. Who was God upset with? He was upset not with angels. He was upset with man. He's talking about how deeply the human race is sunk into wickedness. The imagination of the thoughts of his heart being evil continually. It seems that the giants mentioned in verse 4 were unrelated to the sons of God mentioned in verse 2. If you read it very carefully, if you watch every individual word, watch it now, Genesis 6-4, there were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. It did not say that those men of renown were the giants. It said also afterward that the daughters of men bore children to the sons of God and they were mighty men of old, men of renown, ancient heroes. Well, I cannot imagine a fallen angel and a seductive woman producing an ancient hero. Don't you think this passage is just talking about polygamy? Because the line of Seth, and many believe this, many believe, like Augustine and Calvin and many of the early church fathers, believe that this was a reference to the offspring of Seth that continued in covenant with God after the pattern of Abel, who was the first martyr. Doesn't it make more sense that, unfortunately, some of those that were the offspring of Seth 
didn't really live according to the standards that he set, and they began intermarrying with as many of the daughters of Cain as they wanted. It was polygamy. Polygamy. I do believe there's something else I need to include. Demons can simulate sexual union spiritually, especially in a dream or a nightmare. I've heard of this happening. I've actually prayed for several people who have called me because this happened to them. The male version of the angel, supposedly, or the demon that simulates sexual union with a woman is called an incubus, and the female is a succubus. And the thing is, even though in a dream or a a nightmare, really, it would be called, they might be able to act like it or simulate it. The supposed male-looking angel has no sperm and cannot impregnate a woman, and the supposed female-looking angel cannot be impregnated. So it's an attempt at bridging the gap between the two realms, but a failed attempt. So if they were still among us, if this hybrid group, these weird, monstrous, part angel, part human creatures were still among us, then John 3.16 would have to be altered. The Bible would not say, for God so loved the world. It would say, for God so loved most of the people in the world, except those that have the genetic passed down state that came from these evil unions between heavenly beings, and earthly women. It wouldn't have an all-inclusive statement that embraces the whole human race for God so loved the world. It would have to, in some way, designate only those that were truly beloved of God and able to be saved. The thing is, all of these scriptures that I mentioned still have questionable interpretations, and there's different opinions on both sides of the fence concerning who the sons of God were. But John chapter 1, verse 12 is not questionable. That verse in the King James Version says, As many as received the Lord Jesus Christ, as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. So, Genesis 6, 1 through 4 will probably remain a mystery until Jesus comes, but John 1, 12 is not a mystery. It is absolutely understandable, and that's what matters most, receiving him, the Lord Jesus Christ, into your heart and becoming a son of God to live forever. Thank you for joining Mike Shreve today on Revealing the True Light. And thank you for opening your mind and your heart to the truth. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, cpnshows.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss new episodes. You can explore the beliefs of many world religions more deeply by ordering Mike Shreve's book titled In Search of the True Light. We also invite you to visit our website, thetruelight.net, and sign up to be part of our global internet family.